Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Rwandri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and also acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. So with that in mind, let's start the show. Welcome to Wednesday breakfast. Good morning. Good morning. It's the 28th of August, 2019. We're heading into September, which means spring. It was nice walking into the studio this morning and being like, there's a little bit of sun. It's like a little bit of sunrise. It was kind of, um, yeah, yeah, just like a little bit of light. Coming over the hill with that old church that is now apartments. I saw that. I was parking. I was like, oh, it's a massive. Fitzroy. How were your weeks? Good. Yeah, how about you, Will? You've been away for um, a few weeks. I've been working. It's not great. (laughs) It's, I mean, like you know, work is great. It's fine, but like it wasn't. It wasn't like I went away for a holiday. I wish I was back in Sydney, where it's nice and warm, Mm. with my pudding niece. Right, yeah, so sweet, so cute, she's very cute, and she's moving now. She's Aww. like crawling really? and stuff. Yeah, well, almost crawling. Are you meant moving house? Me too. Oh, yeah, like... no, 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 sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, I just thought of her like as an Im- immobile object, but now she can kind of crawl. Like she goes mm-hmm. in circles mostly because one of her legs is stronger than the other. But yeah, it's yeah. so cute. She is on the go. Yeah, yeah. we should be scared. She's she might come down places. to Melbourne. Crawl down to Melbourne. Yeah, how about you, Ied? Uh, my week has been going mentally blank right now. Oh, my nice. week has been uh, <laughs> study, study, a lot of study. yeah, study, study, study. But also, it's really fun because my partner's doing their final placement in teaching, oh. which means he gets up, goes to school, comes home, works mm. for like six hours, and we just rinse and repeat that for three weeks. Mm. So. Oh. Um, it's a bit of hell, not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> but what it is, it is bringing up to me is like, uh, just so aware of how crap a lot of our teachers' lives are. Mm. I mean, you're looking at classes of like 30 yeah. <laughs> with pay that's below below what they should be being paid uh, mm. and administration out of their ears. Mm. So um, my, my solidarity this week goes out to teachers because mm. uh, I'm getting to watch watch the reality. Uh, kind of unfold. That's what I've been kind of getting up to, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Take oh. my hat off for teachers. And I also went to yeah. White Night. Oh, oh. how was it? Eh. Yeah. You know the best part? Is it always air? No. First, week, first year, I really loved it because oh. it was all about the art. Yeah. And it shut down the city because it was just like, yo, look at the installations. Mm-hmm. Mm. But this year, it's kind of like three days. You know, the city's still going. Mm. And so you feel a lot more like, oh, it just feels like New Year's Eve mm. or, or like some other kind of... It, it, doesn't, mm. it doesn't quite have that art... Vi- that art Focus. Well, what I heard I felt. is that, like, so they had to change it over three days because yeah. it was too intense, the yeah. same people. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to clear people out from the city. So all the installations are, like, outside the CBD. Yeah. So it's kind of a little bit fractured. Which is kind of cool. It, it didn't quite pull off for my mind. But what did pull off, very cool, is the um, Jap Warawang people actually had an installation in the Castle Gardens. Cool. Uh, so this was kind of, you can go to their website page uh, on Facebook, Jap Warawang Embassy. But it was super cool because it's, like, up. Next year, other installations is just like um, Daniel Andrews listen to Jap Warong just going on repeat, and I was like, hell yeah, some gorilla, some gorilla installations going on. So that was probably a highlight. 
Mm. How about you, Jess or Rob? Mm. It's been the same every week. Mm. Uni. Uni. I should have been job searches. Oh. Yes. I've been putting it off and now it's, yeah, a bit of a variety. (laughs) Seek.com, thank you very much. Yeah, Yeah, so pretty boring, but. Does anyone use Career One anymore? No. I I don't think so, no, no. no. I'll try. Poor Career One. I know. Mm, I feel bad. Yeah. It's like my space of jobs. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. <laughs> okay, my space is having a, like a revival. Is it? Maybe career one. The 2000s it are having a revival. Is. Yeah. My space one? <laughs> no. My no. space at one point was having a revival. Um, but that was within my, uh, that was in like my school. People were like, yeah, we're using on my space because no one else is there. Oh, oh. It's like my hipster thing to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, and we can customize the heck out of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cool story. And um, you, Rob? Yeah, me. I mean, mostly study, but I went to a play actually on Saturday night mm. at La Mama Theatre, which was culture. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my friend was acting in it, so he's a playwright. Awesome. So he was helping with the screen, the playwriting for this play. But it was about modern slavery. So that mm-hmm. was quite interesting. Mm. All right, but how do you portray that in a like? What was the kind of theme? So the interesting thing was that the play, rather than being like a play with a narrative, it was really mm. about lots of monologues with a kind of plot as the secondary sort of device. Oh. So it kind of meant it was much more about the stories of the people and how they got here and what they're trying to do to sort of break away from being enslaved rather than the sort of narrative so it was quite interesting the way it was kind of structured yeah that sounds amazing because i remember we've just sorry touching on it quickly we've had the interviews with a few different peoples around kind of modern slavery especially Mm. within australia seeing as we brought in legislation at this start of this year which is pretty toothless but beside that um, it was really interesting because the people we were talking to were saying, okay, visibility is the main issue. Is mm. Modern slavery is kind of this thing that we, we just do not talk about and we don't recognise it's happening in our communities. Mm. So it sounds awesome to have a monologue because it sounds like you're just getting the direct experience, the direct stories to kind of yeah. at the forefront. And it's really humanising it, yeah. showing that it is an actual issue still today. Absolutely, cool. But on that point, we should head to some alternative news. So right. before then, here is some Nitty Gritty by Shirley Ellis. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, So some alternative news. So firstly, there's been a new report that's come out showing that acidic oceans are actually shrinking plankton, and that's in fact fueling faster climate change. So with increasing ocean ocean acidification, it's putting more algae at risk. So previously, algae was not considered to be threatened by ocean acidification, yet this new study has found that as salt waters become more acidic, it's reducing particularly a strand of algae called Antarctic phytoplankton, and its ability to absorb carbon. And so this increased acidification means that the algae is then less able to build up stronger cell walls, making them less effective at storing carbon. And so the thing is, is that phytoplankton's incredibly important to ocean ecosystems, not only for absorbing carbon, but also for fueling entire marine food webs. 
And also the reason that ocean acidification is accelerating is due to CO2 emissions. So oceans absorb actually about 40% of all CO2 emitted by humans. So it's kind of this sort of weird negative feedback loop. So if more CO2 is being emitted, that means there's more ocean acidification, and then this algae is less able to absorb all the carbon because there's more, there's more acidification. And so it's kind of becoming this sort of self-perpetuating effect. And sort of, again, it's really emphasising the sort of unknown unknowns of climate change and how we can't really, as we've been saying, take 350 mm. ppm or 2 degrees Celsius as goals for granted. There's, we have to think much more about the precautionary principle. Uh, second story, uh, there's been a new study that's found out that 40% of students in years 5 to 9 from a non-Anglo or European background have experienced racial discrimination by their peers. So nearly 20% of students with Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander backgrounds have reported experiencing racism from their teachers as well. And so this study is really exposing the extent of racism still happening within Australian schools. And so it's been really disappointing to see these still these processes still occurring mm. and as and how it becomes so hard to change the way that society approaches these kind of racism behaviors once it becomes so ingrained and the flow and effects it has once people graduate from school and so as the study author Naomi Priest noted schools are microcosms for the wider society and of course they are structural issues however on the more positive side from the report, it was found that most students who were surveyed mentioned they would feel comfortable intervening if they saw a peer experiencing racial abuse. Um, but then a more, I guess, positive story, which I found really interesting, given my urbanism background, is how <laughs> it comes from the UK. So in an effort to reduce household energy, the Tube's northern line in London will be using all the excess heat from the Tube to heat houses around it. Um, so there's a proposal to pipe all the excess generated heat from the underground to heat hundreds of homes across the city. And this is part of a broader scheme, which is all about using sort of like waste heat from factories or power plants and now mm. the tube. And so this is a trial that's starting, I think, later this year. And it's the whole point is to bring cheap, low-carbon heat to a whole bunch of houses. So again, this idea of like the circular economy as well and trying to maximise everything that we that we can. Um, and that's quite significant because for context, a half of the UK's energy is used for heating. So finding that's alternative cool. <laughs> heating sources is a pretty big game changer. Yeah, but that's, that's cool. my alternative news for today. Mm. Um, touching quickly, sorry, Will, um, just quickly touching on the council side of things. Um, it's been really interesting to see a lot of Victorian councils coming out and declaring a climate emergency. Mm. This, this just caught my attention. Because, you know, federal, where we're, we're seeing a lot of stagnation with federal policy and stuff like that. But um, I was amazed to even look at my own electorate, look at the community minutes, and that they're actually starting to try and move towards 100% renewables. Mm. So if you guys are feeling down and out about the world, especially with environmental news, um, I do suggest going on to your little local council because yeah. councils are starting to do things. And if we can get behind that noise we can push a bit more local change. So in the last month, I've seen that Moreland City Council is pushing for 2040 mm -hmm. entirely renewable, not Absolutely. just their council buildings, like the entire part of Moreland City, um, which just is great. Very funky. And also Yarrow Council has mm. introduced a climate emergency officer as a new role that they're starting to introduce and advertise for, which is Absolutely. really great. Yeah. Now, before we move on, I thought I might just mention that a, um, a rally has been called for the 31st, which is this coming Saturday of August. Uh, this is called by Ali Hogg from Equal Love and Safe Schools co-founder Roz Ward. Uh, the organisers claim that 
um, potential uh, exemptions from Australia's anti-discrimination laws would allow religious organisations to turn LGBTI people away from essential public services, including hospitals, housing, aged care and disability support. Mm. And so if uh, this sounds like something that you're concerned with as well, um, you're welcome to turn up to the the rally, which is happening this Saturday at 1pm at the State Library. Yeah, great. So before our first interview this morning, we might play a bit of a song. Yeah. Well, you're on music, music DJ That's today. That's right, yeah. Um, so I was thinking that we should start the day off a bit chill, which is why yeah. we've got Leanne Le Havis, fantastic British musician, playing, and the song is Ghost. Here we go.
And that was the incomparable Leanne Le Havis with Ghost. So this morning we're starting off the show with Dr. Matt Hardy, who is a senior lecturer for Middle East Studies at Deakin University. Hi, Matt. How are you this morning? I'm fine. Thank you, Jess. Thanks for coming on. So uh, today we've got you on to speak about um, the Morrison government's decision to join the US-led International Maritime Security Construct in support of freedom of navigation in the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, this decision has obviously struck anger as well as confusion with Australians as to why we would send men and women away from our peaceful country to potentially risk their lives. Um, we can sort of backtrack, I guess, to our past engagements in international warfare disputes and conflict, uh, such as in world wars, and we can see how history says that as allies, Australia has engaged in assistance, um, yet those events sort of have been on a more catastrophic sort of level as in the world wars. Um, it's usually taken a lot more than the US government asking us once to join in a mission. Were you surprised at the Morrison government for making this decision to send a warship into the Strait? And could uh, you sort of explain what the importance and value of the Strait of Hamas is on a strategical level? Okay, that's a big question to start <laughs> with. Um, no, I guess I wasn't really surprised to, to see our commitment to this force. And mm. they call it an international force, but at the moment I think we're only the fourth country to join. Mm. There's the US the UK, uh, Bahrain, which is actually in the Persian Gulf, so they've kind of got a dog in the fight, and mm. us, uh, which is um, a little bit odd that we're even in, you know, ahead of the queue, with, you know, compared to places who are in the region or maybe in Europe and are a little bit closer. Mm. So no surprise, because it does actually not take much more than uh, America to click its fingers uh, in the Middle East and we, uh, we come running. <laughs> uh, we have, over the last... Uh, according to a report a couple of weeks ago, Australia spent about four or five times as much money uh, since 2001 uh, in military commitments in the Middle East compared to what we do in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, which is a little bit odd because we keep hearing successive governments saying we need to be more focused on Asia, um, but we seem to sort of tip a lot of money into to going off to the Middle East. Um, so, yeah, no surprise because it's, it's, it's bang on form. Uh, yeah. Now, as for the strategic relevance of the, the Straits of Hormoz. Uh, this is where a, a, a good portion of the world's uh, tradable oil uh, ships through. It's a very narrow waterway, um, a, a great sort of pinch point in maritime uh, trade, and uh, different parts of the Straits of Hormoz uh, are disputed between Iran and, and countries like the UAE, so there's sensitivities over exactly... Uh, who gets to sail where. Um, although we in Australia and indeed those in America don't get a lot of their oil actually from the Persian Gulf anymore, um, the uh, the effect on oil flow coming in and out of the Straits of Hormuz does affect the world price. And uh, some of you may have noticed that petrol's jumped up quite a lot lately, mm -hmm. uh, and that's because of what's going on there. Yeah, um, it's definitely... Um, a so the case of Australia always uh, being at the beck and call of the US, even with the, uh, you know, the reasoning behind it, it's sort of always a questionable issue, especially with oil in that Well, region. it also, we, we always hear that it's about alliance building mm. and, um, you know, flying the flag yeah. and showing that we're a dependable partner. But um, I think I think our credit's fairly good at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a real question to see whether America's really backing that up in the in the South China Sea, for example, where... You know, we have similar threats to, to navigation and territorial disputes 
uh, with China behind them. Yeah, definitely. And like that's been like the big topic as well, how the democratic states aren't actually getting along at the moment with the EU, US, and now Australia sort of taking a stand with the US in um, this region. Like you said, though, there's a lot of a dispute with the Asian maritime, maritime sort of issues as well. Um, this morning, there came out that Iran has slammed Australia, Australia's military intervention in the Strait of Hormuz um, with Kamal Degani Firuzabadi, who's the Deputy Chair of Iran's Foreign Relations, stating that I don't think there will be material damage to Australia. The damage will be of the reputation and prestige of Australia. Now, with this be, like, being said from him himself, do you think there is reason to believe that Iran could actually issue disruption to oil and economic uh, issues to Australia because of what Australia has done? Uh, No, I don't think so is the short answer. Um, Iran um, always talks a good game Mm -hmm. and, you know, they have to say, uh, they have to make statements like that because they're not really being made for an international audience. They're being made for a domestic audience within Iran. So um, I don't sort of put too much stock in them. Yeah. Thank you. And so from, like, that's Iran's perspective. Do you think we'd be getting a response from other countries in that region, not the Middle East as well as, you know, the Asian territories? Do you think the the, uh, countries like the UAE or other Gulf states will be hardening the economic or trade uh, alliances that they have with Australia because of this? No, not really, because... um you know, the UAE, for example, would be on our side in this. Mm-hmm. Um, the UAE is opposed to Iran. So um, somebody coming in, flying in from the other side of the world to, to oppose Iran as well, it's, it's you know, it's, it's all good for them. Um, look, you know, there may be those, those countries that broadly um, or, you know, in some tokenistic way support Iran mm-hmm. uh, might say, you know, naughty, naughty Australia and, and wag their finger a little bit. But um, as for long-lasting damage, I don't think it's going to cause any issues. Mm-hmm. Australia plays a pretty, um, you know, a pretty good game in all of this because we do wave the flag, we do join the American alliance. We don't do it in any really sort of significant, uh, massive, game-changing way. Um, so we don't actually we, we sort of uh, manage to, to 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 sit between the two stools of contributing, but not really. Um, you know, tipping the balance or anything like that, so we never attract too much, um, too much criticism either. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's good diplomacy for Australia, but it's I guess it's of questionable value in the long run to to our country in in terms of money and 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 strategy. Not when we've got other fish to fry closer to home. Yeah, it's always just like a big sort of almost like a just a media play on displaying, flexing your powers in the media, but not actually going that much further with. You know the decisions made, and and don't don't forget that there's there's trade wrapped up in this, and we yeah. we've talked about trade for the Persian Gulf, but you know you might say why do we want Donald Trump's approval? Mm-hmm. Uh, why should we? But that's because you know tr- uh, trade relations with Australia and protectionism in America, mm-hmm. you know against Australian uh, you know uh, steel products and aluminium products and so on, that that's policy in the U.S. So if we can keep Donald Trump happy. It actually means that we can continue um, a good market relationship with America as well. It's not just about Iran. Definitely. And um, on that note of keeping Donald Trump happy, so with Saudi and the US building relations on quite a large scale, um, as Iran is an enemy of Saudi um, and the strengthening of ties with the US with Saudi, how do you think 
they've actually played a role in Australia's decision, especially with um, the images coming out of um, Australia uh, producing military aid to Saudi. Do you think um, Saudi will have a strengthening relation with Australia? Uh, look, again, I think Australia kind of just has enough of a relationship that it looks good um, without it being a, a truly deep and abiding friendship in the same way that it is with America. Uh, you know, but definitely if, if you're going to ask Scott Morrison or indeed any Australian government of any political persuasion, who do you want to be more friends with, Iran or Saudi Arabia? We'll pick Saudi Arabia every time um, because they affect the price of world oil and Iran doesn't really do much for us. Definitely. Um, one last question for you. So the Morrison, uh, Morrison did state that Australia's involvement would be modest, meaningful and time-limited. Realistically, how do you think Australia will hold up to this? Like, do you see the Liberal government making this a swift tour or do you see, the further, engage, or do you see further engagement with the allied US? Uh, look, I think they're, they're, they're limiting it to about six months at this stage. They'll send a ship over... It'll do six months um, and then it'll come home. The question is whether they'll then replace it with another one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very much going to depend on on what happens uh, between Iran and America. You know, both of them are kind of not wanting to call it quits at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doubling down. Um, I expect we might be there for a bit longer than six months. I expect at least 12. Okay. Great. Well, thank you for coming on the show today, Matt. That's no problems, Jeff. Have a great morning. That was Matt Hardy, Senior Lecturer in Middle East Studies at Deakin University. <laughs> and before our next interview at 7.30, we might play another song, Will. That's right. Uh, so this song is called Ghost. Again. By Brendan McLean, great Australian queer musician who's touring in the US right now. Ghost, let's listen in.
so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Every Monday from 11am on Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesday breakfast. Time's coming up to 7.30 and that you were listening to before that CSA was Ghost by Brendan McLean. Wonderful. Now, just a week ago, Scott Morrison announced that Australia would be joining an international mission to protect trade throughout the Strait of Hamas. We just had Professor Hardy on the line actually giving us kind of a breakdown of the analysis and stuff like that. But I thought we'd get into a little bit of the context of how this has happened. So the region has been rising in tensions as Iran and the U.S. continue to butt heads after the U.S.'s removal from the JCPOA last um, year slash early this year. And then the subsequent two attacks on two Japanese oil tankers, which have been framed... Um, as uh, Iran's fault uh, by the ABC and by, namely, America. Uh, in the following few days, or in the following like past month, we've also seen Iran's seizing of a British-owned oil tanker, which we've just been told in the last few days has been sold off to a third-party buyer. Our most recent development comes from the US National Advisory, John Bolton, who calls for this international mission to get larger. Currently, it has four parties, so he's calling for all hands on deck in the campaign to stop Iran from funding terror, destabilizing the globe and breaking international sanctions. The illicit oil heading from Turkey um, and kind of must not be allowed to be offloaded in the port or sea. So that's kind of the US stance that's come out of it. And in response, Iran uh, came out on the 26th and has told, uh, told as I said before, um, international, uh, especially Britain, that the ship's cargo that had been impounded by Iran has now been purchased by an undisclosed buyer and they haven't told us who that buyer is and they've the the um, thing to come out of the official statement is I don't know its destination so that's kind of got a bit missing so this is kind of the stage in which we lay our scene as I said we've just had the kind of context given by Dr. Professor Hardy um, and we now have Bevan from IPAN on the line. IPAN is the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network to kind of tell us a little bit more. Good morning Bevan. Good morning, Edwin. Good morning. Good morning. Sorry about that huge spiel. Um, yeah. So <laughs> with that kind of aforementioned context and entering into, entering into this international mission to protect trade, it kind of sounds like a little bit of doublespeak for international intimidation or pressure on Iran in particular. Um, what does it kind of, well, in IPAN's kind of perspective, what does this international mi- mission exactly translate to? Well... <laughs> Oh, really, you really have to look at the um, the background to 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 all this. Mm-hmm. Um, you really do, Edwin, because I was talking at a politics in a pub meeting last night about this very issue, and um, the United States is totally responsible for the situation which has occurred. Mm. Um, in 2015, the United States under Obama plus Russia, plus China, plus its European allies, and plus Iran, came to an agreement in which um, there was a peace, well, we call it a peace treaty, but it was called the JCPOA. Right, yeah. Joint, cam, uh, joint uh, Comprehensive, Comprehensive Plan of Action, I believe. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and and that, that involved 
Iran opening up its doors mm. to an international um, energy commission's inspection to see if they were enriching uranium for possible uses for nuclear weapons. Mm. And that was uh, done. They opened up their doors and they were inspected. And the International Commission says, yes, they're complying with our requirements and not doing any of that sort of thing. Mm. And sanctions were basically lifted against Iran. And a peaceful solution had been obtained. Absolutely. It was, from memory, it was actually quite successful. Iran had actually complied with its agreements, and it was America who was lagging behind in those conditions. And, 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 and then um, Mr Trump, that, you know, that was fairly successful. Everyone was mm. really happy about it. But um, Mr Trump came in, and he pulled the United States out of that agreement and reimposed economic sanctions on Iran to the consternation of his European allies, they couldn't believe this had happened because you know, they had achieved a peaceful solution. And that, that's restarted this whole process. Now, um, Iran, Iran has said quite clearly mm. that um, it, it, it won't... I think it was Iran's uh, top leader, supreme leader, said we, we will not have nuclear weapons and they, they, they have issued, or he has issued a fatwa or whatever that is, from the Supreme Council saying that they would never have nuclear weapons. And they're committed to that. And um, under that JCPOA, they were showing that they were complying. Absolutely, now, yeah. The rogue state in the world, the biggest rogue state, is the one that doesn't agree to international agreements. That one was actually sanctioned by the United Nations Security Council. And by pulling it out of it, they're the, they're, they've created themselves the image of being a rogue state by not not uh, not uh, complying with international um, agreements and have precipitated this current situation. And it should be seen within that background. Absolutely, uh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, thank you for kind of referencing that. Um, as, as I kind of mentioned in the previous thing, America has come out very aggressive. Uh, especially with those those um, statements that Iran is funding terror, uh, accusations that Iran is funding terror or, fer- terror or destabilizing the globe, breaking international sanctions. America is definitely um, being a chief aggressor in this. But um, what I, I also want to ask is kind of what was the international mission go, going to mean for Australia's participants, and what was it going to mean for its international partners? What are the foreseeable consequences to come out of this, and what is the what is the double speak of it? Um, look, I, w- I was very interested when Scott Ma- Morrison made this statement and decided to send uh, troops, 200 troops, a ship and a plane there to, to the U.S. Gulf, uh, to the Gulf of Hormuz with the United States because the United States had requested it again. Um, we just jumped to our feet and say, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but are, you, are, are your listeners uh, aware that Japan refused, South Korea refused, Mm. Germany refused, mm. Spain refused. I haven't got a complete list, but those have all refused to join the United States in that action. Now, Australia just jumps to attention yeah, and, um, yeah. and, and and complies, um, and it doesn't without even thinking. Now, the chief of the Australian Army, the ex-chief of the Australian Army, Peter Lay, said this: "I'm not sure how the deployment of a warship." A war and a warplane is going to de-escalate things. Mm. He said he is not surprised at the decision, but he had been hoping that the government would not deploy to the Straits of Hormuz at all. Mm. 
Without the strategies being clearly defined, he said, and the red line joined, drawn, I think there's a severe chance of mission creep. Now, we've seen this mission creep before, end, ending up in a full-scale war. The things in Iraq. Yeah. These, these claims that the US is making about Iraq at the moment sounds all too like... Sounds all too echoey. ...that they did against Saddam Hussein before they went into the Iraq mm, war. Mm, definitely. Uh, and and just kind of, sorry to interrupt you, Bevan, there, but just touching on kind of international partners that have joined this, the UK, US and Iran, um, kind of having a look at this, uh, the US has been quite active, as we've said, in the rising military aggression. But this, what has kind of caused these two other parties to kind of join on, the UK and Iran, uh, the UK's ship was impounded by Iran, which is now, as I said, mentioned early in the interview, has been sold on, but kind of... Where where did the where did the UK and the Bra- and Brown kind of join in on this? What's their kind of motive or, or reference point? Well, I think they the UK is very close to the United States. Mm. Um, but yes, there is an interesting reason here. Um, uh, I think it went, um, if we go back in history, mm. it was Britain who controlled the petroleum the the oil facilities in Iran in the 1950s. Mm. Okay. Um, the, the, the American, uh, the, the British Petroleum Company, I think it was BP, um, actually controlled the oil facilities. And when um, the, the nationalist movement there and um, Dr. Mossad, I think it was, Mohammed Mossad, mm-hmm. um, instituted a democratic and secular government there. They nationalised the oil and took it off BP. Yeah, and right. I think the British have been upset about that ever since. <laughs> oh. and, um, they still have their interest in getting back into the oil in Iran. Right, okay. My short uh, take on it. Yeah, no. Um, This is a little bit of a left-of-field question, but since the induction of Boris Johnson into Parliament, a lot of people have highlighted that we now have a triumvirate, if you will, of kind of uh, cult of personality leaders and kind of alt-right kind of conservative, uh, namely Trump, Morrison and Johnson. Um, Does this policy feel like kind of the the first step born out of this new, this new kind of triangle of leaders that we've found ourselves in? Um... Well, it could well be that uh, those same personalities with the same attitudes mm. um, are working together uh, in, in uh, yeah, in sympathy. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't put too much uh, emphasis on that. I think the fundamental underlying things that, that are behind this uh, push to the straits foremost. And um, can I comment that Absolutely. Uh, apart, apart from uh, Morrison saying it would de-escalate the situation, and as I said, Chief of the Australian Armies couldn't understand how that could be used. Yeah, no, completely. Um, he also said it was going to protect oil supplies from Australia. Now that's a hmm. pretty interesting area to 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 go into hmm. because um, first of all, why are we dependent on oil anyway? Yeah. When Australia used to have its own oil supplies, but in any case, why would we continue to? to uh, foster the fossil fuel dependency mm. when Australia is full of sunshine and wind and, and tidal power and we could, with a decent government who believed in renewables, we wouldn't be dependent on oil from overseas or any fossil fuel if they took the right direction in, in, in pushing Australia, not pushing Australia, leading Australia into total reliance on, on renewables. 
You do. You raise a fantastic point, actually, because um, it was an additional point raised by IPAN and just you then that um, Australia's oil resources are abysmal. I mean, we started off the month learning that Australia holds just 28 days worth of fuel imports, which is well below our 90-day minimum required under international agreements. Um, mm-hmm. IPAN argues that this state of insecurity could kind of leave us more vulnerable and more likely to lean on U.S. Could we kind of get um, your your That's concluding well, thoughts on that? Absolutely. The, mm. the short, of course, in the short term, we are dependent on, on uh, fossil fuel, and you can't just change overnight mm. to renewables. And but recognising that short-term, short-term dependency, we, we should be it's a, a strategic um, um, energy source uh, for the country. And the international requirements are that you have 90 days of supply in case something happens. And we only, our government, to let that dwindle down to 22 days. Mm. And now, um, of course, when the, the Yanks say, oh, okay, we've got this spare capacity here, we can sell it to Australia, then Scott Morrison raises his hand and said, yes, we'll have it, um, and talks to, to, to us that, that this is a way of, of ensuring the strategic supply mm. of that fuel. Yeah. Well, that's a, a last-minute um, sort of a decision. They've, they've let themselves get into this. Successive governments, including Labor, to let Australia get into this position mm. of not having a, a, a reliable strategic source of energy for transportation um, and uh, private use and so on. And apart from the move, move we should make into, into electric cars, maybe, or into renewables, mm. um, they should not have let... It's a, it's a crime to allow the resources to drop to that level and... Yeah. Um, uh, and there wouldn't be a position to say, yeah, we'll grab some from the United States um, at all. We shouldn't be in that position. So it sounds it's definitely it's definitely worth recognising that we're actually living in a crisis kind of state with our resources, like real instability. Because I think it's very easy for us to kind of cover that over and go, oh yeah, we're we're we're, we're fine. <laughs> we don't we just have to worry about petrol prices. We don't have to worry about the fact that we really are. We're not recognising that we really are in this crisis state. We are in a crisis state, mm. and um, the government is covering that up. Yeah, papering it up, papering it over. Wonderful. And, uh, this uh, is not this this, this uh, court saying going to the straits of them is, is the Americans have their own agenda there, and um, this is just uh, papering it over to say, oh, we're going there to protect the oil supplies. We're going there to de-escalate the situation. It doesn't make any sense at all. So you're taking military forces in there to de-escalate, as uh, they said. Absolutely. And my last question is, um, IPAN has stated that. Uh, under this kind of international mission, it could expose Australia leaders and the ADF to accusations of war crimes and aggression. Uh, that's the words of Mrs. Branley from IPAN. Could we just get your comment on that? Well, she's anticipating that, mm. as Peter Lay says, there could be mission creep. <clears throat> and if we get into the Middle East, into another Middle East war, um, she's saying that um, there's, there could well be. Uh, it could well be considered the crime of humanity as that the war in Iraq was where, you know, half a million people were killed, the place was devastated, and a, a stream of refugees has come out of there, and uh, for Australia to get involved in, in another one, not learn the lesson of the last, mm, absolutely. is um, is really uh, a, a crying shame. And um, yeah, we've just had a succession of, of governments and leaders who were so, so keen to follow the United States um, the mm. worst, the war, the biggest warmer, warmongering country in the world. Yeah, absolutely. To uh, and to say that we share values with them, have the same values. Well, I, I hope we don't 
I don't share their values. I, we don't mm. share their values in this sort of respect. And um, that's what I think um, uh, Annette Brownlee was referring to, the dangers of getting involved in another war in the Middle East and the consequences that that would, be, that would involve. Well, thank you so much, Bevan, for coming on and kind of giving us a bit more information. I really appreciate it, uh, especially as I've thrown a few odd questions at you this morning. Thanks very much for coming that's on. That's okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So that was Bevan from IFAN. And next up we have another song. So this is called Cave by uh, Michelle Lilia, who's a queer Lebanese band. Now their performance was cancelled, unfortunately, at the recent Bablos festival due to threats of, by religious extremists. So instead this song was performed at the festival in solidarity by Yo-Yo Ma. Let's have a listen.
Okay, so this is Shiva. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Beginning September 2nd, tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And before our next interview, we're going to play a recorded uh, interview with Tim Kennedy, who's part of the National Union Workers. The reason I invited Tim Kennedy from the National Union of Workers to speak to us today is this statement. It's time for our movement to think big and take the lead. Well-paid union jobs with a future rest not on pretending the climate emergency doesn't exist, but in positioning Australia to be a renewable energy superpower, exporting clean energy to the world. And Beyond Zero Emissions has written many papers on this and would thoroughly endorse that idea. So welcome, Tim. Thank you, Vivian. Could you please unpack that for us, how your union and other unions are going to take the lead for the future? Well, for us, um, it's a fundamental question because uh, the issue of taking action to deal with the climate crisis affects workers and that tends to get a lot of coverage in the media. But the response to take no action or inaction on the climate crisis is fundamentally worse for working people. So we represent workers uh, in all sorts of sectors that are impacted by the climate crisis that the world is going through at the moment. So, for example, a factory opened by a multinational called Nestle in Dennington in southwestern Victoria 110 years ago uh, just decided to close its doors in the last month and for the fundamental reason is uh, drought. Ongoing drought means there's not enough milk supply to process uh, milk in that part of southwestern Victoria. So we see that in our dairy industry, ongoing severe droughts are undermining that. We also see it in the fact that we're organising workers in the uh, horticultural supply chain and it has an international dimension. So not only is there an issue about water, making certain that people can actually grow sustainable crops, but we have many of the workers who work in those crops come from our um, South Pacific neighbours. They come here because essentially they need to get decent work and those, those countries they come from will be the first affected to go underwater, if you like, as, as the climate crisis worsens. So there's an international dimension uh, and there's a fundamental worker, um, worker decency dimension. That is, you know, we need to confront the fact that if we don't deal with these issues, what type of jobs are our kids going to have? What type of meaningful work will they have in the future? Well, I'm impressed by your union because I went to the Labor Party conference in Adelaide uh, just before Christmas and there was a, a marvellous session with them, those overseas workers there, and they were handed out celery and blueberries and strawberries to everybody and we all had to stand up and show what we had, like I had a piece of celery and then the worker who had picked the celery stood up and talked about their wages and conditions, which you are working for, but sound like very woeful and a lot of people will be horrified to hear um, what their conditions are. So could you tell us, listeners might be interested to know the diversity of your membership. You're not just in farm work, but what other workers are covered by your um, union and how is climate change affecting them? Yeah, so, I mean, our union is actually in the process of uh, 
our members are voting right now to form a new union, the United Workers Union, with United Voice, and we hope to be a union of over 155,000 nationally. But the type of areas that our workers work in is, is in fundamental food production, uh, pharmaceutical production. We're in the energy area, so we're, we're involved in, you know, uh, oil refining and the like. So our, our members and workers are in those areas that have to change. So there's a, there's a transition in the way that we derive our energy in the world occurring. I mean, Australia's been pretty chaotic about it, but that energy transition is happening. Our workers will be subject to that, who are members of our union. Automation is coming to the big warehouses and manufacturing food plants that our members work at. And we need to be able to deal with these challenges, especially in the context of the climate emergency, because uh, the one voice that has not been heard in how we actually transition in a just way in this is, is the voice of workers. And so it's very easy for the populist right to create, a, uh, to create a, a situation where if you want to support working people, you have to support the mine in Adani or, or nothing else. And yeah. so it, it's a cruel choice that's been put in front of working people. And our union believes that uh, we all live on the same planet and we also need to confront these issues because so, we work in every sector. Yeah. Well, look, why would your well-paid members of the oil and gas industry, why would they support the students who are inviting us to stand with them to close down the fossil fuel industry, basically? And, um, you know, they're doing stop Adani and go for 100, you know, very simple slogans. But why would your members in that sort of area go to a strike on September the 20th? I, I mean, how would they square it with themselves? That's their bread and butter. Yeah, well, that's the nature of a large democratic union because at the moment, uh, put to them like that, they probably wouldn't support it. What, what, they, what they want is, is certainty in their lives and some hope that they actually will have a stake in the future and do it in a way that's just. So uh, it's, a, it's going to be a long conversation inside our union about how workers in the oil and gas industry are able to transition uh, and to be workers in the next generation of, of energy transition and, and production, whether that be renewable hydrogens or what have you. But it, it's going to be a real challenge for us, Vivian, because uh, we can ignore it and just say everything just stays the same and we'll, when we get locked into that climate inaction or as a democratic organisation that actually wants a future for the next generation and also wants a future for workers now, we actually have to have these conversations, educate ourselves and find a way to participate in the political debate rather than have people do all that thinking for us and impose outcomes on working people. Well, sure. Well, what plans are being written inside your union and with others to make sure that workers are not stranded alongside the stranded assets that we hope will be the fossil fuel industry? Well... A number of the things that we're looking at at the moment is how do we um, change the ownership structures uh, in this country so there's more democratic ownership of energy. Uh, is that of like energy. cooperatives or yeah, community-owned yeah. power? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Our, our worker cooperative in the area of uh, community-owned power cooperative is an important example of one, but we also want to look at ways that we can actually have uh, contribution to clean energy jobs, uh, uh, locally based worker owned cooperatives uh, also we also want to work out ways that how we can uh, give workers a say in what a just transition looks like we also want to fill in this idea what does a green new deal look like in the context of Australia 
how to how to actually you know, people use that slogan a lot. What we want to do is fill in the gaps and put some meat on the bones. Yeah, well, I was, that was my last question to you because a lot of your energy, your workers, when I looked up all the people who participate in your um, National Union of Workers, they, they are involved in food, in energy, manufacturing, and so they're all the lifeblood of the society. And I wondered how the new Green New Deal would work both for the workers and for the cooler climate. Have you got a few more, fle- a, bit, a bit of flesh to put on those bones? We do, and, and the building of this new union will be fundamentally give us an opportunity to actually talk on a much greater scale because you can see in all the sectors that we work uh, there is there is great challenges for the way that workers transition uh, or transition and then we'll have to transition because it will come it, automation is coming the change of our energy mix is coming uh, the one thing that's missing with all this Vivian is a, is a worker voice and we just want to make certain that we're starting to do that thinking, having those conversations inside our union now, that we stand with the next generation, for example, on the 20th of September, and, and say that, you know, as difficult as it is, we want to be part of the part of a solution, not part of you know, looking backwards. Well, I really appreciate that because I've been to a few meetings um, and about this, and, and a lot of the people who said they would go on strike were really low-paid workers and very unsecure, insecure sort of, you know, uh, work situations and for them to come on strike that's a big loss of their income so I really appreciate that and I hope you'll keep in touch with us and, and update us and keep telling us about this story because I really don't think the mainstream media is telling us much about what's happening at all and I'd just like to finish on a quote I had somewhere someone said the uh, transition is inevitable but the justice is not inevitable so that's what you're working at isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Tim. So that was Tim Kennedy from the National Union of Workers. Broadband return, playing the tote band room, Sunday, September 1st. Having completed an 11-city Japanese tour, they now launch their Japanese-released album along with US split vinyl. Very special guests are Japanese label mates, 20 Guilders, featuring Mitsuru Tabata of Acid Mother's Temple. Light Magnetic, the new band with members from The Scientist and Paradise Motel, plus competition team. Broadband, The Tote, Sunday, September 1st. Tickets, $10 pre-sale from thetotehotel.ostix.com.au. Kazumiwan Records is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Radio, and on the line we have Dr. Kate Dooley, who is a research fellow at the Australian German Climate and Energy College at the University of Melbourne, researching the interface between science and policy. Welcome, Kate. Oh, good morning, Robert. So we have a... um, A lot of your research is talking about climate change and sort of how trees can play a part in that. So how can trees play a role in addressing climate change? Well, trees are a critical part of the climate, of the carbon cycle. They take up um, and store CO2 when they grow and they release it when they're burnt or decomposed. So they're already part of, of um, moderating CO2. And they store globally, um, forests store a huge amount of carbon, both in the trees, in the, um, in the woody biomass, but also in the soils. So when forests are disturbed, that carbon's released. Um, even if trees are logged and then the wood's used for something else, it's still released from the soil. So disturbing forests, um, is a major contributor to climate change. 
I see. But in your research, you also talk about a process called proforestation. So what is proforestation and why is it better than planting just sort of young trees after sort of land's been cleared? Yeah, so <clears throat> proforestation is a new term put forward by um, a researcher in the in the United States, Professor Bill Moomore. And it's a new term for a concept that's been around for a long time, but it really crystallizes um, what the benefits are there. So the idea is that um, in t- it's, it's about focusing on intact forests, so forests that have not been disturbed and, um, um, uh, the, and the understanding that they're the most carbon-dense and biodiverse um, terrestrial ecosystems that we have on the planet. So we really need to um, preserve and maintain our intact forests. But we actually have something like um, 70% of global forests are disturbed and degraded. Only 30% are still primary forests. So proforestation is trying to get more of those degraded forests back to an intact state. So it means um, removing disturbance, maybe harvest or other uses from um, forests and allowing those existing forests to um, reach their ecological potential, which also would be a um, what's called carbon-carrying capacity. So as you remove disturbance from forests and it grows back and the biodiversity comes back, um, it also stores more carbon. Yeah, great. Um, so this... The benefits of proforestation compared to um, planting new trees, so if we've got a cleared forest and then we plant new trees or even um, there's a lot of talk about planting trees as a solution for climate change. And while planting trees is good, it's not the same as a forest that has a lot of um, diversity, it has carbon in the soils. Um, that That's what really, it's that um, those ecosystem properties that actually means the forest will store more carbon but also that it's resilient to outside um um, to, out, to damage from outside forces such as um, increased warming. So an intact forest is more resilient to fire, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And in a lot of your, in some of your research, you're saying how that community land tenures are perhaps one effective way to help achieve more of these proforestation strategies. So what is a community land tenure and why does it work? Yeah, so community-based tenure um, refers to collectively held land. So generally we're talking about Indigenous peoples and um, local communities who have collective ownership rights over land. And um, community-based tenure is sort of it's defined as situations in which the right to own or manage the, the um, natural resource, forests, pastures, other lands is held at the community level. Um, and it's it's a it's an um, institutional framework of, of indigenous peoples and collective ownerships. It's not always recognised. Community land tenure um, is not always recognised in um, law, but it's it still can be. Um, it's, it's a customary law that's not always acknowledged in legal systems. I see. And so, are we seeing any policy develops to enc- policy developments to encourage more proforestation or sort of a framework for community land tenures, both locally or internationally? Um, yeah, so there's sort of two different things. One of the reasons community land tenure works um, better for something like proforestation is that um, Indigenous peoples, um, there's research showing that forests under community land tenure and held by Indigenous peoples are generally more intact and less prone to disturbance. So we see that um, globally, particularly in Latin America, but that's because that's where the research is focused. Um, in terms of encouraging community land tenure, there's certainly a, um, a recognition of indigenous held lands is on the rise globally and the, the legal recognition of those lands, um, which enables um, communities to protect the lands 
better is increasing, but it's still only a very small extent. I think something like 10% of collectively held lands are actually legally recognised globally. Um, in Australia and in Victoria, in Victoria we have um, a treaty process um, which is progressing, and and so that's part of this sort of um, global movement or progress of recognising um, collectively held lands. So um, there's, there's potentially good news in Victoria, although we still have um, problems with um, trees being protected. Um, and so in terms of pro-forestation develop, um, progressing, that idea, it's probably uh, not so much. Um, I mean, outside of collectively held lands and community lands, we have um, protected areas but um, which are uh, less prone to degradation than non-unprotected areas, but they are actually decreasing a little bit globally. Um, and Australia, uh, Australia is a bit of a hotspot for deforestation. We're actually in the top 10 of the world's major deforestation countries, the only developed nation in the top 10. And um, last, not last year, a couple of years ago, where the latest data shows that um, nearly half, um, half a billion hectares was um, of land was cleared in Queensland, which and which was a huge increase from previous years. I mean, this has been in the news a bit. It puts um, this increased rate of clearing in Queensland is unmatched anywhere in the world recently. So we have a problem with deforestation in Australia, which is really the opposite to proforestation. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for bringing that in context as well. In sort of zooming out to sort of the larger sort of climate change context, in addition to proforestation, there's been increasing discussion about alternative methods, for example, like carbon capture and storage. What is the current discussion about this method's feasibility and its potential risks? Um, yeah, so in terms of a method to do what proforestation does or reforesting, um, which is remove carbon from the atmosphere and store it, in that case in a forest, um, carbon capture and storage needs to be coupled with bioenergy. Um, so it's bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, and then it's called BECS. So if you hear people talking about BECS, that's what they mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a sort of a new proposed technology. There's a couple of pilot plants worldwide. But the idea is that if you burn biomass for energy and then you capture the carbon, that um, CO2 from the smokestack and bury it, the carbon that was taken up when the plant grew will then be um, not released. So instead of being carbon neutral, which bioenergy is supposed to be, it would be carbon negative because that CO2 you capture and bury geologically. Mm-hmm. So it's quite um, a, an advanced technology to do all of that. Um, but the aspect that I've looked at is um, where does that bioenergy come from? So... Burn bioenergy for, um, sorry, biomass um, to burn for bioenergy um, usually comes from either dedicated crops or tree plantations, sometimes even natural forests. And in um, Victoria, we do, and Australia, we do um, allow natural forest residues to be used for bioenergy, which is, is problematic if we're cutting forests down to burn them. Mm. Um, even if it's from dedicated crops, to use for bioenergy, this potentially is a large um, land use area and the the um, projections globally to use this bioenergy with CCS as a climate mitigation strategy, because the amount of CO2 that needs to be removed is so enormous, um, there's a projection that we'd actually globally need uh, an amount of land the size of Australia planted as energy crops to supply that energy. So that's pretty um, unachievable and would have disastrous impacts on food production and biodiversity and natural conversion of natural land. So it's really um, not feasible. Even when you bring it down to smaller scales, it's still difficult to think about um, where we get a lot of spare land for growing energy crops, which would also need water and fertilizer and 
Mm. Um, we really need to focus on food and also in terms of that. And also so the resilience as well of the space as well. If you've got this one large crop that's potentially only one or two species, it becomes more vulnerable, I guess, to any other diseases kind of coming through. Yeah, exactly. Having large areas of monocrops is um, is bad for biodiversity and it's it's bad for resilience. And um, with it, these are issues we already need to sort out in growing um, in agriculture for growing food. So we don't want to add a whole another crop. Um, bioenergy can be produced, however, from waste and um, residues. So that would be the only sustainable way to do it, but then the scale is much smaller. So it's only a small part of the solution, really. And so what kind of waste energy is that is in terms of biomass waste energy or other forms? Um, yes, biomass waste. Uh, no, any form of waste energy. Mm-hmm. But, well, no, really it has to be biomass waste energy for this purpose. This purpose is to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So you have to be burning something that took carbon out of the atmosphere to start with. Okay. Um, so, but that it still could count um, municipal wastes, that, um, to end of life timber, mm-hmm. uh, like building materials. Um, there's a lot of waste, and and people argue that forest regi- residues also can be included in those wastes. But there's a lot of issues. Uh, forest residues are generally better left in the forest for the ecosystem. Um, there's also um, crop residues, which are often which are difficult to collect and put into a biomass plant anyway but also are usually better left in the fields or used by farmers. Mm-hmm, I see. And so just a final question before we wrap up, sort of talking about another part of your research, which is the interaction between science and policy. And so part of the challenges that we've seen with achieving successful climate change policy is the integration between scientists and policymakers. For instance, mm. for example, knowing how much space we need for if we were to do proforestation or other methods. What are you seeing as some of the sort of tactics or sort of strategies that might help bridge this gap between scientists and policymakers? Um, yeah, it's a really complex question. And on this particular topic of sort of proforestation compared to alternatives for removing carbon from the atmosphere, um, the main problem we have in the science policy communication is um, is a lack of diversity actually coming out of, of the science space or, or a dominance of one solution. So we have a lot of climate models which are based on um, economic optimization. And so they've tended to come up with bioenergy with carbon capture and storage specs as the main um, solution to remove carbon, mm. um, simply because of the assumptions and parameters that are put in the models. And so then policymakers think that um, CEBEX is a solution and there's been less communication and less research and knowledge coming out about the role of forests. And that's changing a lot in the last few years. So in, it's in, so the communication from science to policy and the diversity of knowledge coming out is really important. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, Kate Dooley, thank you so much for your time and sharing your insights about proforestation. Thanks very much for having me, Robert. That was Dr. Kate Dooley, a research fellow at the Australian German Climate and Energy College at the University of Melbourne, researching the interface between science and policy. And up next we have another song called Spirit in the Sky by Norman Green.
That was Spirit in the Sky by Norman Green. And now for something completely different. So on Friday the 30th and Saturday the 31st, yes, this Friday and Saturday, Monash University Museum of Art and Monash Art Projects will be presenting a two-day event called Let's Go Outside, Making Art Public, the good, the bad, and the transformational of public art, which sounds awesome. Let's just establish that. (laughs) Uh, Now, I love a bit of community, and uh, this kind of caught my interest. What distinguishes kind of public art from more traditional forms? Uh, We have Tanya Bruguera on the line, uh, one of the keynote speakers, uh, to kind of discuss a little bit more. Hi, Tanya. Hi, how are you doing? Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, I just kind of want to start off... No problem. I wanted to start it off just um, following your work in the Tate recently. Uh, could you kind of give us an insight into what started your journey into public art, what it kind of is, and where is your passion in it? Yeah, well, what happened to me is that I felt like the public sphere didn't belong to us in a way, either because governments are taking over the space or corporations are taking over the spaces. And then I felt that this is the place where we can actually become who we are collectively. So as an artist, I was interested in exploring those moments of collectivity and how different they can be um, depending, you know, the places where you are activating your ideas and how people react to them. Absolutely. And kind so of... You, yeah. oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. Um, as an acti- as a, as an activist, how do you kind of find that these these spaces can kind of push social movements or, 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 or groupings? Well, definitely is the platform citizens have to mm-hmm. be heard. Uh, we know that a lot of other communication um, mediums have been a little hijacked, uh, but I think social media and actually bodies together in a space. Mm. can be a very strong way to start a conversation about things that sometimes are not so easy to talk about. So it's almost about that uh, collective participants. I know a, a point um, made within the kind of media release around this event is that um, public art captures the attention of passers-by, whether they would choose to engage or not. It, it really mm. does. It, there's, there's no avoiding it. It's kind of very, not confrontational, but it's very immediate. Would you, would you kind yeah, of say... Yeah, the thing is people usually don't feel connected with each other mm-hmm. so, so much. And through public art, you can say, look at something and say, well, that's also my problem. Or it's not my problem, but I understand you. Something that normally people don't have time to stop and think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also not only passive buyers, and, but also politicians sometimes pay attention when you have um, a project that is in the public sphere. Uh, that is actually claiming and asking for things to shift. Mm, okay, so it's kind of opening up this, opening up these conversations. I, I really love the idea yeah. of, I really love the idea of kind of capturing people in the in the moment of you know just walking past something and drawing to the community in that way. Um, do you think that there's greater freedom and diversity in expression through public art? Pardon? Do you think there is greater freedom and kind of diversity in the expression through public art? Yeah, definitely is one of the things that should be defended the most mm. because uh, when you are in the public space, when you are sharing your doubts, your pain, your complaints, your hopes <laughs> with others, you also have to understand that your freedom has to respect the other person's freedom. So mm. lately I've been seeing a lot of manifestations 
again, freedom of expression, mm. which is one group asking they have more right than others mm. to talk about their pain or about, you know, the heritage, where people who normally don't have that opportunity, when they're given that opportunity, they're silent by this majority that really is a minority who who is uh, completely co-opted this public space you know mm, absolutely yeah so this so from this kind of event and also your works um it's it discusses how public art can be transformative um not only kind of creating community where there might not be any but uh, like creating a temporary community, but also this idea of like um, creating the way we envisage our public spaces and our history and our culture and our meaning. Could you kind of give us a little bit of your experience with that? How have you created spaces and changed perhaps or, or shifted culture? Well, to be honest, as an artist, you never know who you're changing because <laughs> sometimes, really, because you do yeah. a piece and so many people see it, you will, it's very hard to track Okay. How you have affected people. But I had people I've met five, six years after a piece mm-hmm. who have say, okay, I was transformed by what I experienced. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the beauty of art, that you put something out there for people to take it with them. And, you know, and it's a, it's a um, effort in two sides. You know, you opening up as much as you can mm-hmm. and giving people the opportunity to think about themselves differently, to organize differently. To, to behave differently and mm. people willing to do it. So I think sometimes it is harder because sometimes people don't want to do stuff and <laughs> they want to be <laughs> in the comfortable place to yeah. go within. Uh, and other people are more willing to, to try stuff, you know, and then they can discover they can be somebody else better. Mm. Absolutely. Honest with themselves, yeah. So it's through this experimentation, I have to admit, I've been looking at kind of a few public art exhibits, exhibits and the experimentation is just awesome. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking, with this kind of growth of public art uh, uh, gaining po- popularity and momentum, um, we're constantly being told that community is being eroded at. I mean, in kind of colonised Australia, at least, uh, yeah. it was very much the culture that you knew your neighbours next door and that you participated in local school or church fates, and that was how you practised community. Now we've all gone digital, and it feels like there's a reduction of yeah. kind of geographical community, and we're all kind of instead online finding our own niche, gratifying, filter bubble community. Um, yeah. Do you think because of this shift, because we've become disconnected more so in society, there's a greater call for a new sort of community? Do you think public art is the answer to this or, or a way of reconnecting? I think public art is one of the answers mm. to that. I also think that we are living in moments where we are uh, in an event-driven culture, mm. meaning that we want one thing after the other, and we get excited about this, and then we get bored, and we get to excited about something else. So I think one thing that can be rescued with, with uh, public art and community art, etc., is the idea of long-term commitment. When mm. you talk about the church, the school, these are long-term commitments people mm-hmm. have made in their community. And this is something that I think social engaged art and public art can do. Can it stimulate you to understand that in order to change something, you have to commit to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it takes time. Absolutely. And the, the forum ex- promises to kind of explore the good, the bad, and the transformational sides of public <laughs> art, um, which is, again, great title. Um, what do you kind of hope to convey in the, in the forum or discuss or to, to even get out of the forum with your audience and the other speakers? 
Yeah, I think one one thing I'm interested in to touch um, in the discussion is how public art has become the alternative to the mm-hmm. commercialization of art, uh, where it is almost like an activist response to the idea that only the market, the art market, and the galleries have the reason and they know what's going on mm. and they are the ones guiding the conversation. So I think it is it is good to to create an alternative to the status quo and uh, public art is for me one of the best uh, ways to, to do that. Also, to be honest, sometimes you go to galleries and they're empty. Yes. The streets are always full of people <laughs> who are eager to engage. <laughs> You've so got I willing participants. <laughs> Exactly. Go where the audience is. Absolutely. <laughs> if the that's... mountain don't come to you, you go to the mountain. <laughs> it's a great philosophy. Um, my last kind of question was, we've we've seen uh, a lot of graffiti in Melbourne, but also guerrilla knitting and um, mm. a few, you know, a, a lot of public art posted around the place. Um, w- would this, or would this, by your definition, fit into public art? Would you kind of suggest to audiences who are interested in this to kind of get involved and how would you start as a burgeoning public artist? Absolutely. I think it's great. We have this myth that only some people could be artists. Mm -hmm. Well, only people who really want to be artists are artists, to be honest. And (laughs) it would be nice that people get engaged uh, somehow, either because they have an idea and they give it to an artist to do a mural or even if, um, you know, it it is difficult because we are having so much going on in our lives and so much is not going the way we want that being in front of an artwork that makes you question yourself and your surroundings, sometimes people don't want that. So I think it's the willingness of the people to understand that they can have one or two minutes a day, the same way now they're talking about meditation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We should have, I don't know, five minutes a day to talk, to, to look at art. Mm. and through art finding ourselves. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to have to wrap it up there, but thank you so much for coming on the show. We're so happy to have you on 3CR and in Melbourne. Thank you so much. Good luck with your forum. It, it sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was Tanya Bruguera on Public Art, uh, talking about the role of public art in our communities, the good, the bad, and the transformational. And that will be running Friday and Saturday. Information will be on 3CR. But I just wanted to say also, um, it's a little closer to home, a little away from the amazing work of Tanya. This forum does come up in the context of the Australian government preparing to spend $50 million transforming the site of the first encounter between Europeans and Indigenous Australians in Botany Bay. During the forum, a chief point of discussion will be uh, the importance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and knowledge um, informing the discussions around how we should shape this cultural space mm-hmm. in order to, as Tanya said, um, shape the way we you know, the way we perceive our culture and um, through our public spaces. Mm-hmm. So that will be kind of um, brought in. There's going to be an amazing array of people speaking. I won't list them all because there's over 40 speakers. <laughs> so, yeah, there will... That will all be at the uh, website. However, you can also head to Monash's website, monash.edu slash M-U-M-A events, and there should be kind of let's go outside making art public, the mm. event. And it's interesting about public art because there's always this layering of these different experiences and perspectives on one land, and it's sort of how do you rectify all these different perspectives mm. and like any public art that you're going to do is going to offend someone so it's, yeah what's the what's the how do you encircle all the different <laughs> exactly. people political it's, act <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's a very fine balancing act absolutely um but we'll be back after the break after a few announcements 
The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair with displays, books, garden pots, giftware and activities for children, along with talks, demonstrations, workshops, refreshments and door prizes. The Australian Plants Expo, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th of September, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Adults $5, concessions $4 and children free. Contact Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra via email on apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430-513-433 for more information. The Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Just quickly, the weather... Um, it's going to be a top of 14 today, very high chance of showers this afternoon, then a slight <laughs> chance of showers during the evening, winds northwesterly 20 to 30 k's, and the shifting south southerly 15 to 25. Um, just some quick community announcements as well. Uh, the people of Coolaroo have had enough. Uh, the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance is holding their first community protest rally in Coolaroo. You may know Coolaroo as the site of a massive and des- devastating waste fire in 2017, now the community is a threat by the Glass Recovery Services, and it's so it's outside the this site of Glass Recovery Services this Saturday at 10:30 a.m. Uh, that folks are going to be meeting. So if you'd like to join them, head over to the Glass Recovery Services in Coolaroo, 10:30 a.m. Saturday. Uh, also, we just want to remind people that the Done by Law. Uh, uh, fundraiser is coming up. It's uh, going to be a really fun event. Uh, tickets are only $30 per person, and booking fee- fees do apply if you get them online, but it's $30 per person if you get them online. Mm. So just search for Done by Law, which is 3CR's Federation of Community Legal Centres weekly community legal centre run radio show. And you don't want to miss the sellout tri- trivia extrava- extravaganza. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, happening on Friday, the 6th of September, 6.30 p.m. Collingwood Town Hall. Absolutely. So get around those events. Yeah. And obviously, thanks before. Thank you before to Earth Matters, who were before us, and Step <laughs> Together, who will be after us. But before finishing up the show, what are we all grateful for this week? Um, I'm grateful for Tanya's idea of five minutes of art reflection. I've got mm. an art app on my phone, and I know I'm going to try and get back into the swing of using yeah. it because it's yeah. nice just to chill out. Mm. Mm. I am grateful for water. Mm-hmm. I, I know, like, it's... It's just such a, like, it's everywhere. But also, it's it's increasingly threatened by all these things that we humans are doing. And it just tastes so good, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Water, man. You can't go past it. No, you can't beat it. Um, I'm really grateful for meditation. I've always found it really hard to do. In the last few weeks, I've actually really been getting into it. Cracked it. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've cracked the code. So that's what I'm grateful for today. That's great. I'm grateful for recycled paper, A, because it's recycled, and B, it has like a nice kind of yellow tinge to it. It's got a good feel. So when I'm like printing like pretty drawings or something, it just like makes it just so much nicer and it makes (laughs) me very, very happy. Um, But that's all for today. We have to stick together next, but see you all next week. Have Mm. a wonderful Wednesday. See ya. Farewell. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately.
sacred birthing trees on Japaran country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.